Association of Nurse Practitioners. I'm the host of today's special edition episode, Nurse Practitioner and Director of Education, Eve Roberts. And this is NP Pulse, the voice of the nurse practitioner. Welcome to MP Pulse, AMP's monthly podcast bringing you unique nurse practitioner voices and expertise on issues that matter to NPs and our patients. As always, be sure to subscribe to this podcast, share with your colleagues, and check back each month for new conversations with nurse practitioners and healthcare leaders from across the nation. I'm excited to announce that MP Pulse podcast listeners may claim CE credit for this program by visiting amp.org forward slash CE Center, then completing the post-test and evaluation. On today's podcast, we are joined by nurse practitioners, Audrey Stevenson and Ruth Carrico to discuss influenza prevention. Dr. Stevenson, who holds a Master of Public Health and Master of Nursing degrees, received her doctorate in public health from the University of Utah. She has worked in public health for the past 34 years and is the former Division Director of Family Health and Clinical Services of the Salt Lake County Health Department in Salt Lake City, Utah. She is currently working in clinical research for Synexis and teaching graduate FNP and MPH students at two universities. Dr. Carrico is the Executive Director of the Infectious Diseases Institute for Norton Healthcare, a large health system headquartered in Louisville, Kentucky. She is also a professor and family nurse practitioner, gratis faculty, with the University of Louisville School of Medicine Division of Infectious Diseases. Dr. Carrico has received training specific for healthcare epidemiology at the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention in conjunction with the Rollins School of Public Health at Emory University, Atlanta, and the Society for Healthcare Epidemiology of America. It is my pleasure to welcome our experts, Dr. Carrico and Dr. Stevenson. Thank you, Eve, for that kind introduction. I'm really excited to be here today with uh, Ruth to talk with you about influenza prevention. When we think about influenza, we think about the epidemiology. Influenza is a cause of significant morbidity, mortality, economic, and even social disruption. When we look at annual influenza epidemics, they result in 290,000 to 650,000 deaths worldwide. Now, while influenza pandemics, like the pandemic of 1918-1919, caused an estimated 20 to 50 million deaths, CDC estimates that from October 1st of 2021 through June of 2022, there have been 8 to 13 million flu illnesses, 3.7 million to 6.1 million flu medical visits, 82,000 to 170,000 flu hospitalizations, and 5,000 to 14,000 deaths. One reason for the ranges in the estimates that I've just mentioned is that influenza is not a reportable disease in most areas of the United States. And we may have had higher testing than normal during the COVID-19 pandemic. Influenza affects all populations regardless of age or health status. We saw lower rates of influenza during the COVID-19 pandemic especially during the 2022 season. 
And many speculate that the same restrictions and precautions that we incorporated in preventing the COVID transmission reduced the spread of other respiratory illnesses. Also, there was a focus on promoting flu vaccination in the months before the COVID vaccine was first available. The wearing of face masks, use of social distancing, good hand hygiene, use of environmental controls and improved ventilation were just some of the measures that helped to reduce the spread of influenza. In thinking about influenza virology, we see that annual epidemic influenza illness is caused by two types of influenza viruses. That's influenza A and influenza B. For influenza A viruses, there are differences in the hemagglutinin, or HA, and neuraminidase, or NA. These different subtypes are represented by the H and N respectively in the flu compos vaccine composition. Now, since the late 1970s, influenza A, H1N1, and influenza A, H3N2 have been the predominant circulating subtypes. Influenza B viruses are separated into two distinct genetic lineages. These are Yamagata and Victoria on the basis of the glycoprotein. We know that we have years where there is a good match between the vaccine and the circulating strains of influenza and years that aren't quite so good. Influenza viruses undergo constant genetic change. The two main types of changes are are recognized as antigenic drift and antigenic shift. Point mutations and recombination events occur in the viral genome, resulting in constant emergence of new virus variants. Antigenic drifts occurs in both influenza A and B viruses, but it's the influenza A viruses that undergo antigenic drift more rapidly than influenza B viruses. Antigenic shift occurs less frequently than antigenic drift and results in a genetic reassortment among different viruses. This can result in a new or substantially different influenza A virus for which there is little or absent pre-existing immunity, and such viruses can lead to widespread pandemic illness. Currently available influenza uh, vaccines are quadrivalent. Ruth, tell us a little more about the influenza vaccine for the upcoming year and your thoughts about who should be vaccinated. Thanks, Audrey. That was a great overview about the two major types of, of influenza that are targeted by our vaccine, influenza A and influenza B. Also, I like that you mentioned the hemagglutinin and the neuraminidase so that we can recognize as we look at the composition of, of vaccines, we can see how they are structured and then it becomes a little bit more familiar to us as we begin to discuss vaccines, both among our colleagues and with our patients. Every year, uh, we receive information from the CDC that uh, shares with us what is going to be in the upcoming season influenza vaccine. So for the composition of the 2022 through 2023 influenza seasons, we usually uh, get that in, in uh, late summer. And this is because it takes a while to develop the vaccine. So information is provided by the World Health Organization and the CDC um, and other partners and then shared with the pharmaceutical companies to actually manufacture the vaccines using what is anticipated to be the most likely influenza subtypes that result in disease in that upcoming season. So for example, now the composition of the 22-23 influenza season 
will, as you mentioned, be quadrivalent, meaning there are four types of influenza uh, protection that are included in the vaccine, two type A's and two type B's. Uh, one of those um, uh, addresses the H1N1 subtype that you mentioned and the H3N2 subtype that you mentioned. Those are the two type A um, viruses that are included uh, protection is included in the vaccine. Then there are the two lineages that you mentioned, the Victoria and Yamagata, that are included in the vaccine, and those represent the protective approaches for the type B influenza. So already we have that, that information uh, that is provided to us uh, from the C CDC every year. It is published in the um, the MMWR as after a review by the Advisory Committee on Immunization Practices. In that guideline will also be a review about eligible populations. Who are the people that we want to target for vaccination? And I always love it because it's very easy and it literally includes everybody uh, six months of age and older. So when we think about who our targets are, uh, that makes it a little bit easier uh, compared with the, the the old days, as I call it, where we had to really look at who was at risk. Well, we became uh, more acquainted with the data and with who truly is at risk for, for influenza. And that literally is everyone uh, that will uh, be able to be vaccinated. So as a reminder, influenza is a respiratory illness. Uh, it is transmitted through the act of breathing. Uh, so all of us breathe, therefore all of us are at risk for influenza. But we know that there are some people who are at particularly high risk for influenza and the flu-related complications. These include groups that we have come to be very familiar with, the, those that have an immunocompromising condition, whether it's an underlying condition or whether that immunocompromised status is resulting from medication uh, that they are, are taking or part of a treatment that they are undergoing. Also, uh, pregnant women, uh, those uh, individuals have an altered state of wellness. Uh, and so we need to be uh, recognizing that uh, both they and that developing baby uh, have risk related to flu-related complications. And then those that have underlying chronic medical conditions, when you have influenza disease, the, the inflammatory response that occurs uh, from, from influenza may exacerbate or take advantage of underlying medical conditions and then uh, result in, uh, in problematic outcomes. We know there are also some populations for which we want to have special considerations. So for example, individuals who have a documented anaphylactic reactions to eggs. Uh, many of our vaccines are grown in chicken eggs or they are egg-based vaccines. So it's a reminder that just because an individual has an egg allergy or even an egg intolerance, they may or, or still be able to accept a, an egg-based influenza vaccine. So it's important that uh, providers take a look at the CDC guidelines, be familiar with what constitutes a severe egg allergy, and then how you might go about uh, evaluating and even verifying that with your patient. Individuals who have a history of Guillain-Barre syndrome, uh, primarily those that developed uh, Guillain-Barre syndrome within six weeks after a prior dose of influenza vaccine um, may be someone that we want to, to uh, have a second look at with respect to the, the vaccine and the potential then for adverse reactions. Those, again, that have had a, a history of a se severe allergic response 
following a previous dose of flu vaccine or someone, again, that we need to give that second look. And then although we, we don't want to miss an opportunity for anyone to receive a vaccine, we know that somebody that has more than just a, a mild or even moderate illness uh, can have a flu vaccine. So we want to say those that are ill, that have a more than a mild or moderate illness, those are the ones that we may want to wait until they have recovered um, and are better able then to mount that immunologic response. Now, there are a number of practical uh, considerations that we have with influenza. I think this has become important as we are seeing more and more vaccines, especially for the adult population, that we are thinking about what about simultaneous administration of vaccines. Our pediatric partners have mastered this in many respects, and they realize that that there is safety when vaccines are co-administered. They uh, have learned uh, very effectively on how to ensure that they can take uh, every opportunity to vaccinate children. Many of us in the adult population are still becoming more comfortable with co-administration of vaccines. So just as a reminder, as we are still considering COVID-19, COVID-19 uh, primary vaccines for the few that have not been vaccinated, but boosters for the many who already have, please keep in mind that you may simultaneously administer influenza and COVID-19 vaccines, as well as other vaccines uh, that, that are indicated for your population, a tetanus vaccine, shingles vaccine, and so forth. Uh, the key is always making sure that you are educating your, your patient about what may they may expect post-vaccination, and then making sure that you are, are evaluating uh, documentation to ensure uh, the appropriateness of vaccine uh, for that particular individual. Now, we often talk about when do we vaccinate? And I think, uh, Audrey, I'm sure will agree with me. Uh, we always say we vaccinate before illness occurs. Our problem is we don't always know when illness is going to occur, especially influenza. It can be very clever. Um, if we see the flu uh, emerge at the time we usually see flu emerge, uh, we start to see increasing rates that occur after the Thanksgiving and Christmas holidays, really into the first part of the new year. Therefore, we want to make sure that vaccination occurs before that time, but not necessarily too far before that time. So our current recommendations really focus our, our vaccination efforts to begin in September and October, realizing that we may have patients that we may not otherwise see, and they may come to see us in our offices in August. Don't miss that opportunity if you as the provider think that may be your only chance. Likewise, remember that flu season extends well into the spring. So if you have an, a patient that has not been vaccinated, uh, in this ideal time of the year, and that is the, the fall, please don't hesitate to continue vaccination. Every visit, remember, is a, is a vaccine visit. So as I've talked a little bit about the, the baseline vaccines, Audrey, can you take us through some of the available vaccines and what they look like? Thank you, Ruth, for that great uh, overview of the current uh, vaccine composition and those special populations. I know that during my career, there's been a number of vaccine developments and innovations in influenza vaccines. There are options for specific populations that were outlined by Ruth, and also individuals that have special circumstances such as egg allergies, or even um, vaccines that are more appropriate for certain age groups. So the types of injectable vaccines include the standard dose and adjuvanted uh, quadrivalent vaccines. And these are vaccines that are manufactured using virus that is grown in eggs. There are four brands of this influenza vaccine. 
Each is quadrivalent, meaning that there's four components to the vaccine and can be given at age six months and older. The second is a quadrivalent cell-based, and this is a quadrivalent influenza vaccine that contains virus that is grown in cell culture. This vaccine is unique in that it's egg-free and it's licensed again for individuals six months of age and older. We have a recombinant quadrivalent influenza vaccine type that is an egg-free vaccine, which is approved for individuals that are ages 18 years of age and older. We also have adjuvanted quadrivalent vaccines. Now remember that an adjuvant is an ingredient that creates a stronger immune response. This vaccine is licensed for individuals 65 years of age and older. Quadrivalent high-dose influenza vaccines have a higher dose of the antigen to help to create a stronger immune response and is licensed for individuals 65 years of age and older. Just a note that where other flu vaccines are frequently 0.5 cc's, this one is actually 0.7 mils. So it's not the syringe is not overfilled and make sure that you give all of the volume of the vaccine. Now there is also a live attenuated influenza vaccine. This vaccine is given intranasally for individuals between the ages of two and 49 years of age. Remember that live virus should not be given to any pregnant, immunocompromised, or certain other groups for which that would be a contraindication. Ruth, I know that there's always questions about vaccine efficacy. Can you help to put this into perspective? Thanks, I would love to. And you know, these are questions that I get a lot about is, is there a difference between efficacy and effectiveness? And what do I need to be looking at if I'm trying to understand what is the real world evidence? So efficacy is generally what we identify during a clinical trial or during a study. Think about the efficacy um, studies that have been done where we try to determine what is the best uh, that a vaccine may be able to perform. So in efficacy trials or situations, those are the ideal. They involve, uh, they involve the ideal patient under the ideal circumstances. So oftentimes efficacy studies uh, may not include populations that are important for our discussion today, and that is the immunocompromised. The effectiveness is more the real world um, uh, effect of the vaccine. What is happening when a vaccine is available for the entire population? And so circumstances may not always be ideal. For example, it may not be all healthy people that you are studying to look at outcomes. So over time, the, the opportunity to understand how vaccines respond in real world settings, in everyday settings across large populations has become more important. And in fact, our patients will often ask us, tell me about what you know, how effective is the vaccine? Or they may hear, well, I, I don't want that vaccine because I hear it's not effective or wasn't effective last year. So many times we have to really provide what is key information to our patients as we have this discussion. For example, how are we measuring effectiveness? Um, we may not be able to, uh, to measure any va vaccine by saying, uh, does it prevent all inc incidents of disease? Uh, we know that nothing is 100%, but our evaluation effectiveness is how well does it pre prevent severe disease or how well does it prevent hospitalization, or if I have to become hospitalized, um, how likely is it that I will need intensive care 
or what is my response if uh, if I uh, have severe de disease and am un unable to um, handle that and death results. Those to me are the true measures of effectiveness. I wanna know how well the vaccine will help me to prevent disease um, at all states. And we know that with influenza, just like we mentioned that the virus changes every year, so our vaccine has to keep up with that. And so our vaccine is, uh, is adapted every year to the anticipated influenza. And so remember that that many times is a guess that uh, we're looking to see and our scientists look to see what was causing vaccine, what was causing influenza at the end of the prior season. And that is historically the most likely uh, types of serogroups that will be involved in influenza vaccine for the next year. So we depend on what is happening historically, but we know, as I've mentioned, uh, influenza is very clever. It will take advantage of, uh, of these types of opportunities uh, to do that little bit of, of drift so that our vaccine may or may not be a spot on match. We also know that the general health status of the population that is receiving the vaccine may also impact the effectiveness. And we looked at this uh, in any time we have co-infections that we know that oftentimes uh, that uh, is going to be more problematic for the individual uh, if more than one infection is present. Uh, one of those being influenza. But generally, we think about the vaccine as being a good match when we see a, an effectiveness of 40 to 60 percent. It can certainly be, be lower um, than that, and it has uh, on some years, uh, but that is our goal, 40 to 60 percent. We think that we are doing uh, fairly well. Now, when we look at some interim data from the 2021-22 influenza season, the overall vaccine effectiveness against influenza that required some type of medical attention. This was medically attended influenza. And we looked at, again, by strain. Uh, influenza A uh, was 14% when we were not able to completely subtype. Uh, but H, if, uh, if H3N2 was involved, that was about 35%. If we looked at vaccine effectiveness by age, we know that, that if our overall effectiveness was about 42%, uh, that we saw some uh, excellent outcomes in our adults 50 years of age and older. Uh, and uh, we saw some equally as beneficial effects in 18 to 49. But our younger population, six months to 17, uh, although it was still, uh, still close to 40%, uh, not as close as we would like, uh, and that indicates then a number of our questions that we generally have uh, with vaccine effectiveness, and that is, are those that were receiving influenza for the first time, uh, were they fully vaccinated? So many questions uh, are always present when we are looking at vaccine effectiveness. But again, if we can get to that 40 to 60% target, then uh, we feel like that we're doing a pretty good job with that estimation for what will be anticipated and the, the potential impact then in preventable disease uh, and hospitalization is certainly reflected. We know that there, whenever we vaccinate our patients, and I think Audrey, you mentioned the vaccines for which we now have some 
uh, preferential recommendations for those that are 65 years of age and older, that we're giving them then a vaccine that is uh, either high dose or adjuvanted or the, the recombinant vaccine. And so we know that those in individuals particularly may have some additional reaction at the local site of injection. But all of our patients need to be prepared for that. I'll have some patients that will say, did I have a reaction to my flu shot? I, my arm was really sore and I even had some redness and swelling at the site. But we let them know that those are expected responses post-vaccination and may also include things such as fever, um, myalgias, and fatigue. So preparing our patients make it more likely then that uh, they will understand then the, the importance of vaccination and having that, that response, but also at the same time, uh, not be fearful of having, having uh, those, uh, those feelings post-vaccination. However, there are some, some rare but serious side effects and we certainly need to make sure that we are maintaining communication with our patients in the event that they need, may need to circle back to us and, and ask questions. So anyone that has a severe allergic reaction, anything that was out of the ordinary that caused them to seek a medical attention, it will be important for them to notify the office or the provider or providers that provided them with flu vaccine because it may be something that we need to include in the vaccine adverse events reporting system or VAERS. If someone develops Guillain-Barre uh, syndrome uh, after flu vaccination, then we certainly want to make sure that that is recognized and reported. And you know that is uh, rare, as I mentioned, certainly serious, but is rare. One to two cases per one million vaccinated. And, and this, uh, interestingly, uh, is lower than the risk of a severe influenza complication. So if we're trying to determine risk benefit uh, for our patients, uh, preventing vaccination because of fear of Guillain-Barre syndrome or severe uh, or, or the risk of a severe allergic reaction, all of those rates are much lower than the negative outcomes that can occur following severe influenza complications. Now, when we think about how we talk with our populations. Audrey, I want to turn this back over to you to as we really focus on how we address then equity issues and disparity issues with influenza prevention. Thank you, Ruth. We still have a long way to go in being able to promote uh, influenza vaccine within the population. Influenza vaccine coverage in the general population is about 50 to 55 percent in adults and about 58 to 62 percent in children. We've had a target of 70 percent for many, many years, and yet we aren't seeing much change in trying to increase the number of individuals that are vaccinated. We also see a number of ethnic and racial disparities. So influenza vaccine coverage between the years of 20 20 and 2021, we saw lower vaccination rates in black children at 49% versus children from other racial groups, which were between the 59 to 63%. We also see lower vaccination in Hispanic adults at 39% and black adults 40% when we compare to white adults that are vaccinated at 56%. Now there's a few reasons for these disparities. We know that there's socioeconomic drivers of health disparities, and these include discrimination or stigma that impact housing, education, employment, paid sick leave, and so forth. We know that many of our individuals in um, some of the other socioeconomic um, populations 
may not have benefits that cover vaccines or they may not have paid time off to be able to receive a vaccine. There can also be mistrust of the medical system and this has been caused by a history of discrimination and past injustices. There can also be challenges in accessing vaccination. So does the individual have limited transportation or as I mentioned before, paid time off of work? Do they have other challenges because of the hours of the operation of those uh, vaccine clinics? We also see variability in vaccination rates and the impact of the mistrust of COVID-19 vaccine on other vaccine intake has been substantial. We've continued to see uh, mistrust and misinformation that surrounds not just the COVID vaccine, but now is carrying over to other vaccines. Ruth, are there some strategies for increasing or improving vaccine uptake? So when improving vaccine uptake, the very first thing to think about is the importance of the recommendation that comes from the healthcare provider. That's the leading factor in a patient's decision to receive vaccination. So start your own discussion by making that strong recommendation. Oftentimes, you know, the key message that I think is helpful to use is that influenza vaccine can be life-saving, that the vast majority of influenza deaths are among those who are unvaccinated or particularly children who are incompletely or under-vaccinated. Think about how you might convey this information. Many times it's helpful for us if we have some, some sort of methodology for having these patient discussions. And you know there are a number of, of, of the mnemonics that can be used to help uh, organize our thoughts. One of them that may be helpful is the SHARE method, S-H-A-R-E. The S stands for SHARE, why an influenza vaccine is right for the patient. This gives you the opportunity to really individualize the discussion to them. It may be the type of influenza vaccine that you are going to provide, or you personalize that uh, with respect to uh, who else in the household may be at risk and why this is a decision that really many times extends beyond the single patient and really takes into consideration their family unit. The H in SHARE stands for highlight. So highlight positive experiences. These can be positive experiences from the literature, uh, the impact of influenza vaccine in you know, preventing some of those catastrophic effects such as acute MI, neurologic uh, complications, uh, metabolic complications that can occur after influenza disease and the, the impact and the benefit that is there through the use of the vaccine. A stands for address, and that is address questions and concerns. Now, this is important because this is when you actively listen to your patient. Uh, put down your phone, turn around to them, put down your pen or get away from the keyboard and look them in the eye and listen to what they are saying. This is the best opportunity that you have to know where that patient is coming from with respect to their concerns or maybe myths that they have heard. The R in SHARE stands for remind. Remind patients about how vaccines protect both them and those that they love, those that are around them. It could be their people that they are working with, but it protects more than just the individual. The E in SHARE stands for explain. Explain the costs of acquiring influenza, including serious health risks. And it's not only the cost in terms of the, the disease, but also the financial social components of becoming ill with influenza. Individuals, uh, even if they are not seriously ill, then they may miss work. 
uh, that may interfere with the other scheduling of important events. So without vaccination, you have zero opportunity to prevent the illness. With the influenza vaccine, uh, we take that large step in the primary approach for disease prevention, which is immunization. So now let, let me get, Audrey, would you join me in talking about some of the common flu vaccines, questions, and myths? Uh, we have heard a number of these in our practice. So if I can just begin to share some of those questions with you. I'll have patients that will say, um, well, you know, my child is getting a lot of vaccines or as an adult, you know, my teenager or my, my young adult or even me, I've been getting some vaccines and I want to try to base them. I want to try to schedule them more effectively. What are some of your thoughts in addressing those questions about vaccine schedules? The recommended vaccine schedule that we get from CDC and from ACIP really is based on the most effective and safe scheduling of those vaccines. And with regard to the flu vaccine, I think you made the comment earlier that I think is really um, important, and that is that we want to make sure that people are protected before influenza is in their community. And so we also want to balance that with making sure that the individual is going to have the highest uh, immune response during the peak of the influenza season. And so that's why we recommend getting uh, vaccines each year for the influenza. But we also need to remind people that, you know, it's not one and done. For children, they need to make sure that um, those younger children receive the two doses the first year that they're receiving the vaccine, but also uh, balancing that with um, that we need to make sure that all members of the family are vaccinated. So I know in both of our clinical practices that we've had individuals coming in for one vaccine and we've asked about other family members and any needed vaccines that they have and we've provided those same vaccines at that same visit. You know, I think that's a great point that, you know, we remember that although when a patient comes to see us, they are our primary concern and we think about their needs, uh, but sometimes we fail to think about, you know, what, where are, where are they living? What are their individual social situations? Because that may, that may expand our individual perspective for them. And sometimes I'll have a patient that will say, well, you know, I, I had a vaccine um, two years ago, but uh, last year we didn't see uh, a flu at all that uh, we saw a lot of COVID. So I think that we're not going to see influenza this year. Uh, how might you address then if you have a patient that says, I don't think I need a, a flu shot every year? You know, I think that this happens more often than not, and especially, you know, individuals um, that may be thinking about getting the COVID booster this fall may not realize that, you know, influenza is just as dangerous uh, to them as COVID. And I think that there's also other considerations in a flu vaccine because we're not just protecting ourselves when we get vaccinated. And we don't want anyone to, to uh, have influenza, but we also are concerned about those individuals that they come in contact with. And for us as nurse practitioners, it's our patients, it's our colleagues that we work with, but it's also our family members and our community members. And so it's important that all of us take the responsibility of getting a vaccine every year. And I will often ask my patients, you know, have you received all of your recommended and required vaccines? And they inevitably are always going to tell me yes. And now what I do is I ask them, okay, so when did you receive your influenza vaccine? Or when did you receive your COVID booster? 
And often what they'll tell me with regard to the influenza is I haven't received that. So Ruth, how else have you been reducing barriers to vaccination? What are some of your thoughts with regard to that? Well, I think, you know, when I, when I think about making vaccine available uh, to individuals, I think, you know, first of all, do they have the vaccine that I, I want to uh, recommend for them? So let me, for example, take a, a, a patient that may be 65 or older. Um, is vaccine available for them? Yes, we know that we have the three um, preferentially recommended vaccines at, at this point. Uh, so I know that they're available, they're on the market, but then are they accessible to them? Uh, where can they find them? Uh, if they are going to uh, a provider that does not have vaccine in their office or doesn't have all of those uh, different options in their office, where are they going to be referred to? Are they referring them to a local pharmacy? Well, does the local pharmacy have the vaccines that I feel like are important for them? And then the whole discussion about the vaccine may be there, it, it may be accessible to someone, but will they accept it? That's where we get back into that, that discussion with our patients, where we are addressing questions and concerns. We're listening to them. Uh, we're trying to, to understand what may be their own personal barrier. And then going through many of the myths that come forward um, regarding vaccine safety, vaccine confidence, uh, so that we then can bring information to the patient that is useful, understandable uh, to them uh, in ways that then they accept. You know, at the end of the day, we hope that uh, all of our patients are going to uh, take our recommendation and, uh, and be vaccinated, but we know that that's not always going to happen. Uh, we can slowly, I think, chip away if we, uh, if we are active listeners uh, and share uh, information concisely uh, but uh, honestly and openly. So, you know, if we're doing that, are there, there are people, I know you have spent so much time, you know, in the public health arena, really building, uh, building partnerships. What are some of these key partnerships that you think are important if we are going to really um, address many of the, the equity and disparity issues that are present with not only influenza vaccine, but with other vaccines? Thank you, Ruth. Yes, um, engaging community health leaders is really critical. And we found that during the COVID-19 experience that a lot of communities didn't trust uh, either public health or the medical community. And so we were engaging these religious or spiritual leaders and uh, other community leaders uh, within uh, these populations to help to promote vaccines. And we've also found that that is very effective with influenza vaccines. So developing those trusting patient community relationships, whether that's using those, those community health leaders or whether it's working within uh, smaller populations, uh, having trusting relationships with the patient and with the community is, is going to be key in trying to increase the, the number of individuals that are protected with the influenza vaccine. We wanna make sure that our staff reflects the community. And I know this was one of the requests that we got out of the COVID uh, vaccination responses that individuals wanted to see other individuals that were providing vaccines that look like them. And if they're not the vaccinators, at least if they're the educators using community health workers or using other community leaders to help to provide that messaging is going to really be helpful. 
I've really enjoyed this opportunity to talk about influenza and the importance, and I've really enjoyed working with you, Ruth, on this uh, presentation. And we'll um, turn the time over to Eve. Thank you. Well, thank you so much, Audrey and Ruth. It's been an absolute pleasure listening to you and gaining your perspective and insights on this extremely important topic. To our listeners, I hope you found this episode educational and can apply some of what was discussed to your practice. Join your National Professional Association and add your voice to over 120,000 of your NP colleagues nationwide. I urge you to become an AMP member today. Membership gives you access to so many benefits, including tools and resources for your practice and the AMPC Center, which offers a comprehensive library of CE activities for MPs of all specialties and experience levels. Exclusive discounts and many free activities are yours as an AMP member to help you complete state licensure requirements and earn the credits needed for recertification. Don't forget that you can learn more about influenza and earn continuing education by visiting aamp.org forward slash CE Center. Additionally, you may claim CE for this program by entering influenza 2022 in the code prompt, then completing the post-test and evaluation. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast, share with your colleagues, and check back each month for new episodes. And thank you for listening. Mm-hmm.